0: a multi-year push for criminal justice reform in the legislature and with the governor's office welcome to grand divisions this is the week of january 28th i'm joel ebert
1: And I'm Natalie Allison.
0: All right, we're going to cut right to the chase today and go to an interview that Natalie and I did with House Majority Leader William Lamberth. Uh, We had an extensive discussion that we had to edit down, it was so long, on criminal justice reform.
1: Thanks for coming on, Leader Lamberth.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I just uh, really look forward to visiting with you all today.
1: Yeah, so,
0: um, you know, one of the big things we obviously are interested this year is Governor Bill Lee has talked a lot about criminal justice reform. Uh, It's been something that he had mentioned throughout his campaign. Uh, As you are now working with the Lee administration, what are you hearing from them and how is that helping formulate what the House is going to do this year?
2: Absolutely. I'm glad you asked that question. I'm glad that's what we're going to be talking about for a part of today. Um, as you all know, for the last four years, I served as the chairman for the Criminal Justice Committee. Uh, the chairman of our judiciary now is Michael Curcio. He's going to do a fine job there, was the vice chair for the last two years. And really for my entire adult career, both as an assistant district attorney and as an attorney now, I mean, that's what I've worked in. I've worked in the criminal justice system. I've seen uh, its successes and I've seen its failures. And unfortunately, um, and I'm, I'm sad to say this for our state, we've had a lot more failures in that area than we have success. And so when Governor Lee um, was first campaigning in the primary, then in the general, I was very excited that we had someone running for governor that genuinely had seen firsthand through Men of Valor and some other programs, and he and I served on a commission together on some Senate reform issues under Governor Haslam, that this was going to be the prime focus of his campaign. Because the only way we could ever really solve some of these issues is if it's a major Focal point. Um, And obviously, Governor Haslam did a phenomenal job with infrastructure in our state, with education, with reducing taxes. Those are the things he ran on. Well, Governor Lee ran on fixing our criminal justice system and making sure that it works well for Tennesseans. And really, what that falls into in our conversations have been kind of two camps. Let's make sure our sentence structure works well, so that we're incarcerating those that we genuinely are afraid of, those that just simply have been, uh, every attempt has been made to alter their behavior, and they've either not taken advantage of that or simply can't alter their behavior. I mean, evil exists in this world. I hate to say that, but it genuinely does. I've stared it in the eye. Um, There are some folks out there that genuinely get pleasure out of other people's pain, but it is such a very small percentage of our actual jail and prison population. For everyone else, uh, in my conversations with the governor, um, we are going to focus on how do we get better outcomes than we have previously. They're literally a captive audience. I mean, these folks are incarcerated in a jail or a prison, and right now when they come out of whatever sentence they have – They're worse off than when they went in. That can't continue. We've got to do a better job.
0: I mean, I want to go back to a quote that you gave to the the Gallatin News uh, last fall. You said at one point we need a, a, uh, let's say, a top to bottom rewrite of the criminal justice system. That sounds like a very complex thing, right? That's not going to be a thing that you can immediately do overnight. So what is the first step to making that happen? And is this a multi-year
2: effort? Oh, I think it definitely is a multi-year effort. I mean, you want every single interested party at the table. We need defense attorneys and district attorneys. We need you know, those that are working with folks that are in reentry programs. We need victim advocates and survivors at the table. We need to make sure that we build a system with everyone that has been a part of this system for the last several decades at the table. And so you can't do that in the first few weeks and months of this administration, but we can do it over the next couple of years. So I think you know, in year one, what I hope that we will see and what I think we will see um, out of the Lee administration and out of this legislature is a real investment in the infrastructure of how we do this. I mean, we need higher pay for prison guards. We need more probation officers. We need to invest in treatment programs and educational programs that we can utilize while folks are incarcerated or on probation. And and thus far, we don't have that infrastructure built up as well as it should be. So I I think in year one, you're going to see some changes. I mean, I think you'll see some policy changes, um, but really, in, in my humble opinion, I think you'll see the bulk of a lot of this in year two and beyond. I mean, I think that's where we can really take apart our entire sentencing structure and have some real tough decision. I mean, some real tough discussions over the next few months on how do we change a criminal justice system that was designed in the late '80s um, with really a gun to our head. If you'll pardon the to our if you'll pardon the pun, because we had just gone through a federal lawsuit for prison overcrowding. Um, our prisons were busting at the seams. I mean, they they designed a system back then that they hoped would keep Tennesseans safe, but it was really designed on. Long sentences on paper, short times in prison with early release dates, which no one could predict when someone was released, very hodgepodge as to when someone would actually get out, and then the hope that, well, if they're on probation or parole for a long time, they'll behave. And it just doesn't work. I mean, we have literally over 50% that are coming back into the prison system within three years. That obviously is a failure in the system. We're either letting folks out that should be kept in, or we're not preparing those folks that we're releasing to re-enter society uh, and do well.
1: What do you think about uh, the idea of decriminalizing marijuana possession uh, or, you know, even taking a look at the sentences for people who are found in possession of small amounts of marijuana? Of course, there's the case of uh, Calvin Bryant. I think that was his name who uh, he was a first time offender. He was sentenced to 20 some years in prison here in Tennessee uh, for selling drugs in his apartment um, that happened to be in a school zone at night um and that that did spark a conversation about the people we are sending to prison what do you think about all of that should that be should that law be changed
2: well, first of all, I'll say, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've actually sponsored bills in the past that have changed the way that we penalize um, possession of marijuana. I mean, I've, I've carried one of the only successful bills that actually got through the House and Senate in which possession of drugs, third or subsequent, was a felony. And we back that down to a misdemeanor because you're talking about folks that are addicted. You're not talking about folks that are in, you know, violent you know violent, violent drug trade or in gangs or something like that. I mean, they're, they're addicted to a substance. They've been caught three times. So, you know, those folks need treatment. They need help. They don't need to be, become, you know, felons. And so we've changed some of that around. But in that same bill, we increased the penalty on multiple offense, drunk drivers and on carjackers. I mean, obviously, those are very dangerous crimes. So I am very open and I encourage everyone to engage in a conversation on how we should punish certain crimes. Now, I think some of the red herring issues that get out there is like, well, let's just decriminalize this group of crimes or that group of crimes because they're not as dangerous as others or they're not as important as others. just again, in my opinion, that's not the best way to go about it. You can change the gravity of the penalty that goes with a specific crime, and we and that is a healthy conversation to have and one that we must have. But to say, well, we just don't have time or we don't have the resources to focus on certain criminal elements, I think ignores the underlying problem. If you have somebody that is out there, um, regardless of where they're dealing drugs, they're involved in a very violent transaction. When you deal with drug dealing, you're dealing also many times with sex trafficking, with gambling, with, um, you know, with theft, with violence. I mean, aggravated assaults, murders, everything else that goes with that, uh, with that criminal enterprise and, and in varying degrees throughout it. And I'm not familiar with the gentleman's case that you mentioned, but if he received a 20 something year sentence, I can almost guarantee you that it was a large amount of drugs that was being sold in that circumstance. And I'll be happy to look that one up. I'm just not as familiar with that particular circumstance. But those are the kind of conversations we have to have in his circumstance and anyone else's circumstance. Does the penalty, does the punishment fit the crime? And, and that's what will take some time. But the only way to get that right is, quite frankly, to get gentlemen like that involved, get folks that are ex-offenders, get folks that have been in the system, get folks that are with law enforcement and district attorneys and public defenders and say, look, how did we best serve that individual, regardless of what their crime was, regardless of how much time they spent? One, what got them in there and was that sentence fair? And then two, you know, while they were there, you know, did we do a good job or not of trying to rehabilitate that individual? And, and, and again, quite frankly, it doesn't surprise me that there might be a really long sentence on a specific crime that folks might look at and say that's too long, because, again, these were built on paper to look long. I mean, you know, to look like a lengthy sentence, but with the understanding you're going to you're gonna let somebody out really early. We've got to really look at, is the length of that sentence appropriate?
0: I want to go back to one of your earlier answers. You talked about the systemic issue of just going after criminal justice reform. One of them you mentioned was was the pay that that officers receive. I mean, you were at a hearing, Natalie, today. Yeah, we're
1: uh, 48th in the country for correctional officer pay. We're I mean, almost going to be 49th. West Virginia is about to surpass our uh That's absolutely
0: pay. crazy, right? Like, how mm-hmm. do you... How do you even uh, fix that system without just throwing a bunch of money at that? Well,
2: I don't think you throw money at it. I think you're you're very strategic about it. I think you look at the areas that are in our state that are, you know, it's different for um, different employees in different areas of the state. When you're in an area where there's very low unemployment, take Sumner County, for instance. I mean, our unemployment on a regular basis is under 3%. If, If you're paying somebody $12, even $14 an hour, they can go to McDonald's and make that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my baby brother is a student and is, you know, working part-time at Dairy Queen. And when he started there a few months ago, he literally – I told him, you know, coached him up with his interview and everything, and I said, look, make sure you ask him how much you're going to make before you leave. And so we asked him, and they literally turned around and said, well, look, you know, we, we need some folks pretty quickly. What do you need to make? I mean, we got a kid working at Dairy Queen part-time that is literally Setting naming his, his price. Yeah. So, by the way, he set a price, and I said, man, you should have gone for a couple <laughs> more bucks. I mean, but seriously, so if you're in an area where um, – um, they're, it's they're that um hungry for employees and you've got a prison guard that's making nine or ten bucks an hour to be spit on cursed at being a you know a, a holding sale with folks that quite frankly don't want to be there that may have mental health issues and drug addiction issues and are in a horrible environment anyways and you're making less than what you can make at the local dairy queen then we've got a problem mm-hmm. now there are other areas out there where you may be able to pay nine ten twelve dollars an hour and have decent retention so but overall i think you do have to add a significant Significant amount of money into that system to raise the overall pay, but then be strategic about it to say, all right, I mean, you know, what are the prisons right now that we're having trouble? Um, Hanging on to those quality employees Because they do a good job But by the way If we're going to pay them more We're also going to have to Need more out of them It's not going to be enough To just be in that prison cell And make sure nobody leaves Those folks are going to have To be a part of the solution To ensure that those prisoners Understand And this is going to sound odd Coming from an ex uh, An ex-assistant district attorney But that they are valued As much as you and I are Because every single one Of those prisoners Minus a few I mean 95% of them Are going to be released At some point Back into our communities And um, um, I mean, I'm a religious person. I'm a Christian. Um, and, and they, and, you know, God loves them the same as he does us. And so we need to focus on that. And we need our prison guards to treat them with the respect that they deserve, even though they're prisoners.
0: On that point, you talk about reentry. Uh, Governor Lee has talked about the need to sort of bolster or put more resources behind the transition from being in prison to being released. Do you see how much of a role do you see that the like private groups like men of valor, valor that uh, Governor Lee was a part of play in that versus state government?
2: Yeah, I think it's a combination. I mean, I think there's always going to be a role for private groups in that um, in that that process um, in fact I've, I've been involved in many of those private groups just as the governor has and but it's, but it's always going to be a small percentage of the whole um, the biggest role that I think some of those groups can play is it's an incubator for ideas I mean some of the things that they do can work very well for us um, and for instance I mean I'll, I'll you know just brag on Commissioner Parker for a moment for several years now he has been absolutely trying to lead this charge of saying look if you'll invest X amount of dollars within the prison system then you will get better outcomes and we passed the Public Safety Act a couple of years Ago that I carried for Governor Haslam. And it was just sometimes it's little things. I mean, for instance, if they're going to come out on parole or probation and they have a minor technical glitch and you know they, they miss a probation meeting they fill a drug test um you know they they're behind on their fines and fees i mean something that is not mission critical so to speak but is understandable that they may make a mistake and slip up um previously before the public safety act you get a probation violation a pro violation you go sit in the jail for several months until they adjudicated your case no bond just set because these are folks that are on probation or parole they're supposed to be in prison it's a privilege to be out we've changed that dynamic some it's it's, un, it's been struck down by the criminal court of appeals while waiting on the tennessee supreme court to rule but our method if it works and this was commissioner parker's vision is to give those probation officers the latitude then instead of filing a probation violation say look will you you want to go spend 48 hours in jail this weekend or do you want me to file a violation if you want to file a violation we'll go before the judge or your case but if you just want to go do 48 hours in jail for missing a probation meeting or maybe come in every week for the next six weeks instead of once a month or whatever it was allow those probation officers to really have the flexibility to understand people's lives. I mean, these are many times broken people that come into the system. They're not going to be perfect. They weren't perfect before they came in. We shouldn't expect them to be perfect after they come out, but we should hold them accountable for their actions and guide them back in bounds. But it it can't just be zero to 60. It's got to be guiding them back in and working with them. For those that show that they won't cooperate and they just simply won't abide by the rules – That's why we have prison. For those that are genuinely trying, we should work with these folks. So that's many of the things that I think you can invest in um, outside the prison walls. And then we can talk more later maybe about some of the stuff we can do inside the prison walls.
1: So do you think that there is going to become even more of an official partnership moving forward with private – Nonprofits like Men of Valor. I mean, we keep hearing we need to partner with them, partner with them. Are they going to be written into legislation? What What does that mean?
2: Yeah, and I mean, we partner with anybody that wants to help. I mean, that's, that's not an issue. I don't know how much we can, um, I mean, actually partner with them. I mean, you know, we can, I mean, obviously screen folks. We can, you know, um, make them aware. But at the end of the day, it's still the offender's choice. And when you have someone that, uh, you know, if you have somebody that doesn't want to do treatment, that doesn't want to do a program, that doesn't want to receive education, I mean, you can't make them. And so um, I think we make all that available to them and we partner with these organizations in a way where anybody that is incarcerated, that's on probation, I mean, knows that these services are out there. And then I think we use these private organizations again as incubators of ideas so that some of the processes that they use that they can show works. I mean, like, I mean, our recovery courts work um, because they have a model that works very well. I mean, they have folks that are ready to get help and treatment and it's a program that's regimented and it works. Well, we can mirror that within the system and we can do some risk needs assessments and everything else. Again, something that Commissioner Parker's talked a lot about so that we tailor the programs that we're offering to the needs of those prisoners instead of trying to do just a one size fits all. And that's what I think we can learn from a lot of those programs. As far as specific legislation to say we're going to use this program over the other, I don't think you're going to see anything where we're pick win- picking winners and losers. I think we're going to try to use some of those best practices. Practices, and then with those programs, make sure our, you know, anyone that's in the system knows what's available out there. Hmm. And possibly, by the way, you know make some more funds available for some of those programs or others. I mean, that's mm-hmm. definitely a way that the state and all of us as taxpayers can support some of these programs through
0: grants and, through grants yeah, and everything, yeah. but
2: only the ones that can prove that they're successful. I mean, that again, you've got to be strategic about this. You don't want to just waste money on programs. You want to use the resources we have wisely on programs that are proven to work. Because the goal every time I step into a courtroom, again, both as an assistant district attorney before as a private attorney, is to ensure that that person is at least has the best opportunity to never come back into the court system. We don't want folks recommitting crimes. We don't want more victims created out there. We want people to come into the system, you know, address whatever needs they have. Absolutely, there's punishment and accountability for their crimes, but understand that someday they're coming out. I mean, minus a death penalty sentence or a life sentence without parole, at some point they're coming out. We got to get them ready for that.
0: Tennessee, as you know, uh, uses private companies like CoreCivic to operate Mm -hmm. its prisons. There's been, in the last few years, several issues, whether it's accountability or poor conditions among inmates and or officers. In your mind, do you think Tennessee should continue to use companies like CoreCivic?
2: Absolutely. I have no problem using uh, private vendors for a number of different um, activities or services within the state. Um, Private prisons are not the problem, okay? The problem needs to be solved at the legislature with the policies that we set up on exactly what we expect out of any vendor for the state of Tennessee. Those rules should be crisp, they should be clear, and they should be followed. And I think that's really where the the problem may arise from time to time. I also think that we need to hold our own state facilities to the exact same standard that we hold some of the private prisons to. And some of the issues that we have seen in the private prisons that have been highlighted because that's a hot topic in their private prisons, you could go in, I'm embarrassed to say, you could go into virtually any state facility and see the same problems. Hmm. And so, unfortunately... It's not as easy as just saying, "Well, hey, this private vendor over here is the problem." We have a systemic problem, and it really does it. It it kind of comes from everything we've talked about already, um, with you know, with with. You know, prison guard pay not being enough, with some of our policies on keeping people in and what we do and do not do within those prisons, those private prisons are going to do whatever their contract says they have to do. Those contracts are set by the state of Tennessee. Those policies are set by my colleagues in the legislature and and in Governor Lee and his administration. So in order to be able to address that problem, or you know, the problems that have come up, I think you have to set better policies and I think you have to make sure that any vendor, be it private prisons or probation or a janitorial service that's cleaning the floors, that you have very clear rules on what's expected and you insist that those private vendors meet that expectation. Um, I will say that I like the flexibility of having some private prisons involved in the process because each prison that we would build is about a billion dollars. And in talking to the commissioner and others, that's about what it takes. You also have to pay for staffing and everything else. Um, Any time that we decide as the legislature to potentially shrink sentences or have better release you know, opportunities or shrink the prison population itself, if we owned every single prison out there and didn't have at least some of these private prisons involved, then we would have to make the decision to shut down of prison that we'd invested to build and fire hundreds of employees. If we have a contract with the private prison, which is why we have very few of those, but we have some, then all we do is in the contract. If we no longer need their services, we end the pr- contract and we're not stuck with the prison that we have to keep or hundreds of employees that potentially we have to let go. It gives us a little bit of flexibility. So, I you know, I, I know my friends on the other side of the aisle and, and, uh, and another party that I do not necessarily identify with would be dis- disappointed to hear that. But I no, I don't think private prisons are the problem. I think we need better policies. We need better outcomes. We need to set that up in the legislature and make sure that everybody holds true to it.
0: You mentioned your colleagues on the other side of the aisle. Where have those discussions been so far on criminal justice reform in general with Democrats?
2: Yeah, I said it tongue-in-cheek a while ago about uh, my colleagues on the other side of the aisle. One of the Best things that I love about the state legislature is once the campaigns are over, I mean, once all that's done with and everything, for the most part, I mean, 95% of the issues we deal with are nonpartisan. I mean, they really are. Um, and so when it comes to criminal justice, I've said for years, I mean, if somebody's going to knock you in the head and take your wallet or your purse, they don't check your voting history beforehand. Okay. They don't really care what party you hail from. And so, uh, and the same is true for a mental health issue or a drug addiction issue. I mean, it hits everybody equally, hits every single ethnicity, every gender. I mean, it, it is, it hits us all. Hits every family. So it's not a Republican or Democrat thing. So I, I think folks are very excited about this. Um, I know Karen Camper and several of our uh, several of the leadership in the Democratic Party. We've had a lot of conversations um, with Rick Staples. And uh, I mean, it's just there's a lot of folks that are talking about this all the time. Um, and the Republican and Democrat. Now, you throw all that, those ideas on the table, and I think the best ones rise to the surface. Ramesh Ackberry over in the Senate has worked for years on expungement and sentencing and programs, and she's been a, a real champion for folks. So there's a number of folks that um, have really worked on this. I, just to keep naming names, Antonio Parkinson and I, um, he claims it's ought to be a pay-per-view event anytime we get into a, a tussle in, in committee, uh, because we've had some good ones. I mean, we've had some real good verbal throwdowns, just to be clear, um, and which we we dispute, you know, how something should be approached, but the beauty of it is, Representative Parkinson and I come at it from the exact same perspective. Though that we want folks to do better, we want people to, to have better outcomes. So there's lots
1: of there's lots of overlap. There's some. You know, there's a degree of bipartisan cooperation on this issue of criminal justice reform. Where are you going to disagree with Democrats? What are they asking you for right now that you're that you're saying that's not going to happen. I don't think that's the best approach.
2: I think when we just ignore ignore criminality and just completely abandon the principle that each individual should be accountable for their own actions. I mean, I, I you know, and that that's specifically, Well, no, I mean, I I think that goes across the board. I mean, when you just say, well, look, we should legalize this activity or legalize that activity. And you mentioned, um, you know, possession of marijuana or something that earlier legalizing certain drugs. I mean, I think that's a, it's a really dangerous road to go down where, I mean, you know um, if you just start legalizing behavior, I mean, we have states that have legalized prostitution. We have definitely states that have legalized different drugs. I mean, you can, you, you can't legalize your way out of a criminal issue. I mean, because you, you have underlying addiction issues there. You have other problems that have led to that behavior. And when you just start saying, And you know what? We don't think someone can even be... Um, accountable for their individual actions, then that's where you lose me. Because, I mean, I think as people, we can always get better. We can always learn to develop behaviors that are more positive, both for ourselves and our for, um, for our community. It's just a matter of how different people can go about that. And so that's where sometimes I will differ um, with some of my friends in the Democratic Party. And I will tell you, there, there's a lot of Democrats out there that agree with that precept, that people should be individually responsible for their actions um, and be held accountable, but again, be given a road toward victory so that they know where the, the finish line is and how to get there
1: thank you leader Lambeth. we appreciate you coming on this week well seriously <laughs> well, i've enjoyed it and
2: thanks for the job that you guys do to just get the message out there to the citizens here in tennessee of the work that we are attempting to do um, in nashville on their behalf and over the next few months and hopefully a couple of years um i hope that we address and really solve any of these problems it's just an honor and a pleasure to serve the people of this state and uh, i still believe our best days are ahead of us
1: This past week, our education reporter, Jason Gonzalez, had a story about what's likely to happen in the legislature this year concerning vouchers, otherwise known as education savings accounts. Uh, Jason, tell us a little bit about what you found out so far.
3: So lawmakers this year are looking to pass a proposal that would create education savings accounts. And what that would do is allow parents the option to send uh, their students to either a private school or uh have money set aside to uh send homeschool them and it would create some options there through an account um that essentially is is money they can use that would uh roll over if if this proposal does come to fruition that so they can use it in subsequent years or for college someday
1: so there's been a lot of discussion in recent years about school choice, uh, what what policies are, are the best for uh, families and students. And, of course, there's been lots of pushback from Democrats saying this is a horrible policy to take money away from public schools uh, and put it over into private schools. Um, tell us a little bit about why this year could be the year and why suddenly this could gain traction maybe in a way it hasn't previously.
3: Well, I will say uh, the – Republicans have also uh, in s- small factions been against this. And that's one of the reasons why it hasn't passed over the years. It hasn't had the support from uh, the entire uh, Republican caucus. So it, it, and really, this has been in the House. The Senate has passed uh, voucher bills um, and but the House has been the one that really hasn't passed much. Why this year? Well, uh, there are. There's a lot of feeling that there's support there from Governor Bill Lee, from House Speaker Glenn Cassida, who said last week, this is the year to do it. And so lawmakers are really feeling emboldened that they can pass this this year, that they can get it done uh, with the amount of support that they have.
1: Yeah. And, and Billy had had previously said he he was supportive of school choice measures. And it the, the question has been uh, how how much will he pursue that in legislation? And that remains to be seen. But it does seem like uh, by all indications, it's it's very likely to come up this year. Jason, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Governor Bill Lee has started his series of budget hearings, hearing from all the state departments about what they're asking for this year, also asking them to put forth plans of how they would cut 2% from their annual budgets. Uh, so far, we have attended several of those. They're still ongoing into the week. Uh, but in a press conference the other day, Bill Lee and his f Finance and Admi- Administration, Commissioner Stuart McWhorter, outlined some of his priorities For this year, Joel, what were some of those?
0: Yeah, they included five areas they stressed. Uh, K-12, criminal justice, mental health, healthcare, and rural economic development. Um, they didn't really provide, Lee and McWhorter didn't really provide specifics. Uh, we pressed them on questions about, does that mean that your funding is going to go specifically to that area? Does that mean you're going to take money out of higher ed because higher ed isn't that list or isn't in that list? Um, they did not have yeah, answers. No real so.
1: answers yet. Yeah, When we asked, so does this mean that these these departments are going to receive more funding? We couldn't even get a yes to that. So it remains unclear how exactly these are going to be prioritized, but uh, these these topics in and of themselves are not surprises. You know, with the exception of. K twelve. I mean, a lot of these things are things he already said he was going to be funding. So
0: yeah, and I I talked to Governor Lee separately after uh, that press conference. We talked to, uh, mostly about healthcare. Uh, I have a story that should be out at this point um, that's related to what he's planning to do with healthcare, and it sounds like he does uh, want to put some money specifically in his budget behind uh, uh, you know adding additional resources to these uh, rural hospital. Uh, I, I guess partnerships that there are out there with nonprofits uh, and other interested parties. So I would anticipate, you know, uh, a lot of those priorities coming very clearly very soon. Um, His budget has to be set. I I think it's early February, I want to say, with the state of the state lined up in in March. So uh, things are coming fairly quickly together. But right now, we haven't heard, as of this podcast, very many specifics out of these uh, budget hearings.
1: Yeah, he he says that he should have make his decisions by next week. I think it was February eighth. Uh, certainly, healthcare is one that there are a lot of people, you know, curious to find out what he's going to propose. That was an issue that uh, his opponent, Carl Dean, certainly pushed uh, in the in the campaign in the election, um, saying. It remains unclear how Bill Lee would solve the problem of uh, hundreds of thousands of people without health insurance.
0: And as I'm noting in the story, early in office already, he's been you know in office for less than two weeks, and he's gotten multiple calls. The Tennessee Democratic Party, uh, there has been uh, letters and emails that they have been receiving, and there was also this this fiery speech that uh, uh, Reverend William Barber gave on Martin Luther King Day, where they specifically were were asking people to stand up. Up for the things that they care about, that Dr. King really championed, and one of them was access to healthcare. And so there, there was sort of this this notable uh, difference between uh, those there. You were there, yeah. Natalie. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I, I guess it was it went a little bit further than stand up. If you want access to healthcare, he I think uh, the way Rev. Barber framed it was if you support universal healthcare, okay. You know, stand up. Uh, before that, he had asked everyone in the room, including some of the leaders on stage, like uh, Harold Love and and David Briley. Uh, stand up if, if you don't support a wall. Um, so Billy didn't stand up for either of those things. And that sort of launched the next hour of William Barber. And this is this is Billy's first weekday as governor. Um, William Barber kind of dragging him, uh, calling out what he would say is hypocrisy. You know, how can you say you support uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And, and his vision and his legacy when you don't support... Uh, Policies that are going to to help people without access to affordable housing and healthcare and uh, extended voting rights and things like that. Uh, so it was it was a pretty brutal first day for Billy.
0: I asked the governor about it, and he did not re- even reach towards my question about it. You know, it was basically a you know w- we support all Tennesseans. Uh, that's a comment that he said throughout the campaign. That was a comment that he said at or prior to that event, I believe, uh, yeah, when he, he spoke to you guys. He
1: has repeated the line. This was in his his victory speech. I want to be the governor of all Tennessee, and so that's something he keeps going back to when he's sort of pressed on what he thinks about the barber incident. But
0: politically, I talked to Democrats and Republicans. This was a major error. Of, of maybe his people, you know, uh, having him oh, invited into... Stage. Yeah, it, it just does not look great for that new administration. It was not
1: a great look. And, and it's not something
0: that he can't overcome. He clearly can. Uh, but you just think, okay, you're the new governor, and the first thing you want to do is probably not look like you're stepping in something that you you, you don't know what you're getting into. Uh, and, and so I wouldn't put that at, at the governor's feet. I would put that on more of his staffers, yeah. but, you know...
1: It, it, you know, at the same time though, like he 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 took it. I mean, he, he handled took it, like it gracefully. A champ. Absolutely. Uh, David Briley walked off stage early. I don't know what his other obligation was, but you know, Billy sat through pretty much the whole thing, um, and you know, you could tell it was it was it was awkward. But uh, he, I guess, he learned from that experience, and I doubt we'll see him on stage again with someone like William Barber. Um, maybe in the future, he'll he'll do the brief remarks and then exit, but. We'll
0: see. Also in Governor Lee's first week in office, he has issued four executive orders. Natalie, you wrote about all of them. Uh, What were they and uh, how significant are they?
1: Well, his very first was a nod to, you know, this rural development initiative he has announced throughout the campaign, even, you know, in his first season office. He said, I'm going to focus on stimulating the rural economy, helping people in rural Tennessee who are in poverty, who are addicted to opioids, who don't have jobs, who don't have access to great education. He's asking all the state departments to essentially take a look at how they're serving rural Tennessee, and he's asking them to put forth a plan on how they can improve. Um, so they basically have until early summer to get all of that done.
0: And then there were three other ones, three right? Three
1: more that were pretty much uh, the same three that Bill Haslam had put out Um a couple of them early on in his administration too tweaking them a little bit one pertained to uh what kind of ethics disclosures uh senior staff and other cabinet members uh governor's staff have to put out uh he he extended that he made more people have to file those disclosures than what happened under Haslam uh he also is like Haslam requiring that the state departments receive training on public records laws um and also, that the Department of Human Resources and Labor and Workforce Development take a look at the uh, non discrimination hiring policies of all the departments and make sure that everyone is in compliance. Both of those were pretty much things Haslam did. Uh, Bill Lee put in a 120 day deadline for those two.
0: As we look to wrap up, uh, we'll do a quick notebook dump, Uh, two things really to note uh, this week. Uh, The bill filing deadline in the House and the Senate, they're coming up very quickly, which means there's going to be a flurry of legislation that we're going to try and keep a track of. Uh, The the one for the House, the filing deadline is going to be February 6th. The very next day in the Senate, it will be February 7th, their filing deadline.
1: And William Lambert, who you just heard from, introduced a resolution to honor Martin Luther King Jr. This was filed the day after MLK Day. The resolution says that they do honor his legacy. And then at the very end is a three page resolution. There is a line that says uh, the legislature will join with Tennesseans to fight racism. Uh, Lambert told me later this was sort of instead of a resolution that failed. Twice last year in the General Assembly, uh, that, that old resolution filed by Democrat John Ray Clemens sought to have the legislature denounce white nationalists and neo-Nazis. But William Lambert said this accomplishes essentially the same thing.
0: That's it for Grand Divisions this week. Thank you again for listening. And as always, you can find us on iTunes. Please rate us. Uh, it really helps with our uh, whatever it is, it helps. Um, and Natalie and I do couldn't it, do this without uh, the help of Erica Whitney and John Garcia, their podcast producers. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Grand Divisions3. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next Tuesday. I'm Joel Ebert.
1: And I'm Natalie Allison.